And now, ladies and gentlemen, I take great pride in presenting our wonderful guest star... Stasi, don't forget her name this time. Gonzo, I will not forget her name. It's Nancy Walker. I know it's Nancy Walker. That's Nancy. Rhymes with fancy. I know, I know. Walker rhymes with talker. Gonzo, I have it. And it's Nancy Walker, not... Fancy talker. Gonzo, I know the guest star's name is Nancy Walker. I remember Nancy Walker. I will not forget the name. Okay. You forgot to introduce her. Ah! Hi-ho, and welcome once again. To a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, how you doing? Doing all right. But now that we've talked for an hour before recording, uh, we should probably get <laughs> recording now. Yeah, it's time to get things started. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you to check out our social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and oh man, I hate Twitter, but on Twitter and uh, uh, lunaticdaring.com, our website where you will where you will find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently chugging our way through season two of the Muppet Show. It's already happening kind of fast. <laughs> Moving along here. Moving right along. Have you noticed that Fozzie's already saying moving right along every once in a while in the show? Uh-huh. I, I, I didn't realize that that was like a catchphrase that Paul Williams would later turn into a song. I, I'm just starting to notice that that's already something that Fozzie says a lot. There's something sort of like a, a counterpoint present within the episodes that we've seen for the season so far, because all of the guys are significantly more confident, but that's just causing them to play with form more. And we'll we'll go into that a little bit more as we, we get into the episode further. But the format changes without changing, like on a fundamental level. But if I'd seen the first episode that we're going to talk about tonight when I was a kid, it would have freaked me out because separation anxiety. And I mean, you're, you're right, though, that they do. Once you get confident in, in kind of your base level, you start playing more and pushing yourself and testing yourself. And you can see that they're already doing that with these episodes and they're going to continue to do that. So instead of uh, speaking broad strokes, let's just get started. Let's get this started. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Judy Collins. So Nick, as you know, um, every Friday night when we record, I sit down with my daughters and my wife and we watch the two episodes that we're going to talk about in the evening, you know? Let's just say after Judy Collins, it wasn't hard to get my kids to bed. Tell me a little bit about this ethereal, folksy woman who's just, man, straight out of the 70s. Honestly, she's probably more out of the 60s as we talk about it. Judy Collins, born Judith Collins in Seattle, Washington on May 1st, 1939. She was the oldest of five siblings. She was the daughter of a blind musician. So she was always around music. She and her family moved to Boulder, Colorado, when she was very young, she started studying piano with Antonia Brico, which I am not a classical music aficionado, but I, I do understand that this was a, a big name for a time. And she debuted with the recital at age 13. Antonia, like, she had a lot of faith in Judy's ability to go far as a classical pianist, but Judy started getting a lot more interested in protest singers and folksy things, at which ended up disappointing her. By 1965, Judy had started learning guitar. Now, up to this point, she had polio at age 11, which was shortly after her first recital, um, and just a couple of other little incidents that would, would affect her. 
as she went on. She would marry in 1958 to Peter Taylor, uh, who she would divorce in 1965. That was the only marriage that she, she wore children from. She ended up getting kind of popular by playing songs on the radio in the University of Connecticut, which is where her husband taught at the time. And she would also play clubs and pubs and things of that nature, but it was more like a, a singer-songwriter feel, sort of like you would see at an open mic. A lot of her catalog, both at that time and since, has been covers of other musicians' work. Like, she would look into these singer-songwriters. She was partially responsible for Leonard Cohen becoming a mainstay because one of her covers of his song became popular and sort of directed people in his direction. She did a cover of Suzanne? I think so, yeah. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know she can trust you For you've touched her perfect body with your mind she released her first album in 1961 at age 22. She was the subject of a song called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Stephen Stills. I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. Give my gifts She was definitely part of the counterculture. In 1969, she testified in support of the Chicago 7. One of the things we'll we'll discuss as we get to the episode proper, she did make a number of appearances on Sesame Street. Hey, aren't you Judy Collins? Yes. You're the singer of songs, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, I, I saw you sing songs once. Did you? Yeah. You know me, I don't sing songs. Oh, everybody does. Well, everybody but me, maybe, but me, I don't sing songs. Why not? You you probably never tried. Or... No, I probably don't know how, is, no. that is what it is, because I don't know how. I'm sure you no, know how. No, I don't know how to sing. No, everybody knows how to sing. Oh, well, everybody but me. I don't oh, know how to sing. Oh, no, I don't believe it. Well, I've tried every now and then. I've tried. Oh, no. I go, la, la, la. I've tried like that. You know what? Mm. You just sang. She quit smoking in the 70s in some of the darker turns of her life. She did end up suffering from bulimia, which she revealed to People magazine in 1992. She also would experiment with other drugs, but alcohol ended up being her vice of choice. Up until 1978, not too long after this episode of The Muppet Show, at which point she got clean and stayed clean. Also lost her son to suicide in 1992 when he was 33, and she's been a very vocal, I don't want to say supporter, a very vocal activist in support of people that might be suffering from suicidal ideation or mental health advocate or whatever. That's what I would. Um, she's released two memoirs, Trust Your Heart, uh, which was released in 1987. Her second memoir was called Sanity and Grace, and that was released in 2003. And she also released a novel called Shameless in 1995, uh, which was also the name of an album that was released around the same time. She is still alive, at least as of this recording, she is still alive. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about her numbers in this. Um, and that's pretty much all she has in this, her musical numbers, right? She doesn't have any sketches. Not unless you count the cold open, but yeah. Ironically, actually. She just came across as, a, as um, yeah, she's just a singer <laughs> that sings nice songs. She's, I don't think she's a Muppet guest. I think she's a Sesame Street guest. Like, on a fundamental level, I think she's a Sesame Street guest. I mean, she was a pretty big name at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think she fits in on the Muppet show that way. Um, but I, I agree with you. There are there are times like this. I mean, there's one particular number that just should have been on Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a little too violent with the eating of live animals, but we'll get to that. I guess I'll die. 
The Muppet Show, episode 205, featuring guest Judy Collins, was produced between June 21st and June 23rd, and on October 19th in 1977. There must have been a reshoot or something? I would assume it wouldn't premiere until the following year. Uh, in the UK on January 29th in 1978, and in the United States on January 30th. I, did, I don't know. I didn't find anything about it, uh, about that odd October thing the Muppet Wiki has, but could have just been a, they went back and reshot something. Probably not with her. It would have been one of the the other sketches. Yeah. Director, Philip Casson. Writers, Jewel, Henson, Bailey, and Hinckley. We do have a new face. We've we do. indirectly heard his voice before. It's totally gross. He, he does have a face for radio. <laughs> we get to meet J.P. Gross, Scooter's uncle, performed by Jerry Nelson, designed by Marie Casel, who would go on to build Beauregard, Lips, Marvin Suggs, and others. She would also work on Piggy a lot. J.P. will show up in another three episodes of this show. He's not a giant character, but he does come back. His presence is felt more than it's seen, which is probably for the best. Yeah, every time Scooter opens his damn mouth. <laughs> We're gonna get into this, though. Scooter's a little bit of a traitor as shit in this episode. I mean, he's also kind of that in general. Judy Collins? Oh, 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Collins. I'm ready. I'm ready for anything. <laughs> you weren't ready for that! <laughs> And I think this is the only dialogue that we're going to see from her. Until the closing, yeah. She tells Scooter that she's ready for anything, which is immediately made false by Crazy Harry, because (laughs) if you challenge Crazy Harry, he's just going to show up, and then he's going to blow up, and that's what he does. We go into the theme, and from there we move into our opening number. Kermit comes out to introduce Judy. Hey, we really have a terrific show for you tonight, because we have with us one of the most beautiful and talented singers in the entire world. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's about Uh, time you said something nice about me. Uh, Piggy, I I was referring to Miss Judy Collins. Oh, him. Piggy thinks he's talking about her. He's not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so for the opening number, Judy sings Leatherwing Bat, which is a song that I've heard before, but I've never known the name of. Hi. Said the little brown leatherwinged bat, I'll tell you the reason that, the reason that I fly in the night. I've lost my heart's delight. We've got a number of animal Muppets, but also all these animal Muppets have very big eyes, with the possible exception of the singing owl, which we saw last week. It's based on an old English folk song, which can have a different collection of birds, depending on which version they're doing, as folklore tends to do. This is the third time that we see the owl, though. We actually first saw the owl in Emmett Otter, and then it just sort of migrated over to the Muppet Show for last week's sketch and well i mean you got an owl you might as well use it ever since then my head's been red howdy dowdy diddle all day howdy dowdy diddle all day howdy dowdy diddle all day how dowdy oh yeah i mean how many times are we gonna see those chickens they're gonna keep coming of course they've got the legs for it they do they do there's not a whole lot to say no like, she's, she's got a lovely voice, and mm-hmm. this doesn't create the impression that she's uncomfortable in the setting at all. It, she seems perfectly fine interacting with and playing to the Muppets. She's got a very soft voice. It's a very nice voice. It's... It's just kind of there. It's just it's it's just kind of there. It, but on top of that... Both this and the next number that we'll talk about from her, they feel kind of didactic. Right. 
Like this, it's a folk song, but it feels like a teaching aid. Like if this was on Schoolhouse Rock. Or the street. <laughs> or the street. Yeah. It feels more in place there. And I don't know. It's not jarring, but it doesn't mesh. This isn't necessary for every episode of The Muppet Show, but I prefer it when we get a sense of the guest. And we don't really get that from her. We don't get any sense of her personality. All we have to go on are her musical numbers. We do, but the sense that we get is that she's like that kindergarten teacher a little bit. Yeah, I keep coming to the word ethereal. She's not full Kate Bush, though. Like, it's that would be an interesting guest. She's not like Luna Lovegood, but she's like kind of in that territory. Like, she just feels ethereal and uh, flighty is probably not the right way to put it. But she's, you're you're right, though. Like, she's not a host that's going to jump in with both feet. No, she's just kind of skimming over it. She comes in, she does her job. Um, she sings her songs. I will say before we even really dive in, I don't feel like she had any desire to buck her image or to play with her image at all in this, right? Or mm-hmm. to do anything new. You know, you'll see some some guests as we go on that are just raring to try something new. Wait till we get to Nureyev pretty soon, the, the ballet dancer, right? Mm-hmm who want to like burst out of it and change their image and, and, and surprise people. Sandy Duncan, remember the Sandy Duncan, uh, what's a nice girl like me mm-hmm. sequence, right? In the bar, like that's even playing with her kind of wholesome image. Very clear that Judy Collins wants to come in, sing a couple of folk songs, you know, and be Judy Collins. But uh, it, it's an okay musical number. I found it a little dull. She's very competent. Like she's... It's not dull. It's uneventful. It just, it feels neutral. Neutral's a good word. Like it's, it's not bad. It's, she's very, very competent. I like the sound of her voice. I wouldn't be upset listening to it more, but it doesn't, it feels like it could be a part of Hanson production. It doesn't feel like it's part of the Muppet show. I think what I've learned about myself is that uh, unless the musical numbers like really knock my socks off, there better be jokes, right? Like I either want something that completely destroys and if it doesn't destroy, that's fine, but it better be funny or have some sort of internal comedic uh, narrative going on within the scene itself. Honestly, I don't even know. Well, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I don't even know if it needs to be a comedic one, but there's got to be some sort of a premise or yeah, a premise like We've got progression here. We go from one animal to the next, and that's just where we're going. But it's not really going anywhere. Yes, we're on a, we're on a journey, but we're just on a journey to get to the next bird. Yeah. Well, sell the hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. Buy all your railroads. Forget the two hundred. Let them go straight to jail. Right. Oh boy, look who's here. Oh, Kermit, you know my uncle, J.P. Gross. Yeah, I own the theater, the ground it stands on, and the mineral rights underneath it. J.P. Gross is a not-so-subtle reference to J.P. Morgan, uh, the American banker who dominated corporate finance throughout the Gilded Age. As the founder of J.P. Morgan and Company, when he died, he was worth around 80 million bucks, which would be over a billion dollars in today's money. The name invokes money. Well, everything down to the way that it's spelled. Yeah, and he's a cigar chomp, and this is one of the episodes that has a warning on it for uh, tobacco use Mm. on Disney+, Plus because he's always chomping his cigar. There's never any smoke. They don't go that far, but he definitely has his cigar the whole time, which, to be fair, he wouldn't look right without one. Like, he's definitely the kind of asshole that's always chomping on a cigar. He's decided that the, I think he even says, like, we can't squeeze any more out of this place. Um, We're done, so we're just going to tear it down and open up a junkyard. But but, but, but why? Because there's more money in real junk than this junk you got here. (laughs) This well's dry. Kermit even leads in saying, like, our numbers are up. We're doing all of the stuff. And he's like, I don't really care. (laughs) Yeah, you're still not making any money. Congratulations, it's over zero. I mean, they've got a very low overhead. They don't even pay their comedian. 
So we meet J.P. Gross after a whole season last year of uh, hearing. We never heard his name before, but of Scooter kind of lording him over everybody. Now we get to meet him. And uh, he's just kind of as big of a dick as we had imagined. Which actually is a pretty good segue to our next sketch, because... And now, Pigs in Space! Featuring the stout-hearted Captain Link Hogthrob. The fetching first mate, Miss Piggy. And the ubiquitous Dr. Julius Strangepore. Last week, the spaceship swine trek was rapidly approaching the electrifying mid-course correction maneuver. The swine trek is preparing to make its electrifying mid-course correction maneuver. Miss Piggy has attended school just for this. And I think one of the things <laughs> I really enjoy about these sketches is we take the piss out of Miss Piggy all of the time. But in these, she is the most competent and the most <laughs> self-aware person on this stage. I loved, though, I loved the detail that not only did she go to school to learn how to push this button, and I, I, I get it, she went to school to learn a lot of things, to be a first mate on, on a spaceship, I guess. But she keeps emphasizing that she went to school for 11 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> To learn how to push this button. She's like very specific about the 11 years several times. Oh, Captain Link, would it be all right if I performed the mid-course correction? Oh. oh. After all, I did go to school for this particular maneuver for 11 years. They need to push a button and she's going to do it. She gets really kind of, she kind of flirts with Link a little bit to get him to let her push the button. Mm -hmm. And then as Strange Pork's counting down to when they have to hit the button, her and Link get into an argument. <laughs> it's I don't even know if it's fair to call it an argument. I think it's just Link perpetually unable to read the room. Like, Link is just legit being like, cool, so this is very important. She's like, I know it's important. I went to school for 11 <laughs> years. It's like, okay, but I need you to understand this is really important. I did like that when he goes, well, you are just a woman. She goes, yes, Captain, just as you are a man. Technically, you're both pigs, but we know what you're talking about. <laughs> they missed the cue. I wouldn't say they missed the cue. I would say that Hogthrob misses the button. Like, he, he legit pushes the wrong button, doesn't he? 25 seconds to mid-course correction. No, first mate, Piggy, hmm. don't forget which button to push. Uh, I know which button to push. I studied it for 11 years. 15 seconds. It's this button right here. I know it's that button. 10 seconds. Well, just push it when he tells you. I know, I know. Five seconds. Don't panic, Four. first mate, Piggy. Will you shut up? Don't tell me to shut up. I'm your captain. Now, push the button. Push the button. Push the button. Just do push it. If you don't push that button, I'll push it myself. You pushed the wrong button, One thing I wanted to point out in this, did you notice that it shows that the swine trick does have more crew members? Because mm -hmm. it had kind of basically the equivalent of a red shirt pop in his head in the door and say something. Yes, I'm afraid so. You don't mean... Yes, undoubtedly. Does this mean? Yes, yes it, it does. does. So they're setting up a cliffhanger that, of course, none of the cliffhangers on Pigs in Space ever get resolved. And uh, but I, I was actually shocked by that. I had forgotten the idea. I mean, obviously, when you watch Star Trek, you know, you've got your bridge crew, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of other people crewing the Enterprise. So I could actually stand for like a full... 45 minutes of Sam the Eagle addressing the nation. 
Yeah. I would also like to draw attention to the fact that Sam the Eagle stands in front of, I don't think it's, I think it's a, a blue eagle on the... It looks a little bit like the presidential seal. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I think it's just supposed to be like vaguely American. Yeah. Sam stands behind a podium to say that he's dissociating himself from the show, which brings to question, how often do you think that Sam dissociates in the abstract? Like, he, <laughs> he seems like he's regularly pretty stressed out, and that brow's like constantly furrowed, but I have to imagine that there's this ridiculous Ford commercial happy place that he goes to where he's flying over the Rockies and only seeing quality entertainment. I just want it known that following that last piece of material, I am disassociating myself from this whole weird, sick show. I know I say it a lot, but he's not well, so we shouldn't make fun of Sam too much. I think Sam makes fun of Sam. He just doesn't realize it. (laughs) In my head, Cannon, this podium is is in his bedroom. (laughs) He doesn't have a desk. He just has like a card table with a podium on it. And he just gives these addresses at home. It's like, uh, you know, oh, you've never seen King of Comedy, but it's like Rupert Pumpkin. I, I have, actually. That's one of the two Scorsese movies that I've seen. So it's like Rupert Pumpkin in uh, King of Comedy. Sam is a fan of good, clean American fun. He can't define that, by the way. <laughs> of course not. He doesn't know what that means. He just knows to dissociate. He just knows that he's surrounded by weirdos. and um, He's not wrong. Yeah, but he's one of them, too. <laughs> that's what he doesn't get. Ladies and gentlemen... At this time, we have a very special, uh, 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 look, I'm trying to make an introduction. Oh, go right ahead. I'm just checking the floor. We move backstage again. Or, no, we don't even make it backstage. We're still on the front stage, and Kermit's getting ready to make an introduction. But, uh, JP, the gross man, decides that he wants to interrupt it while measuring out the stage floor. I couldn't tell. Like, sometimes he acts like he's checking it out to sell it, and then other times it's like, no, I'm tearing this thing down. Maybe he's checking to see how much to give him back on their security deposit. He's not giving them a security deposit. (laughs) No, he's the type of guy that fights tooth and nail to keep the security deposit, right? They don't pay their comedian the bear. It's not like they've got a great moral leg to stand on. Everyone's had those landlords that's like, they should just give you your money back, and they just come up with every single reason not to. Yeah, it's it's a good time. This is actually sort of seeding the final bit of the show, but we'll we'll come back to that in a little bit. We we see that the floor is not in the best condition. He blames Kermit's wet flippers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, make a note. Some of these boards are rotten. Well, that's too bad. You know, if you dried your flippers before you came out here, this wouldn't happen. But yeah, this was all Kermit uh, introducing Judy uh, for another act. Yes, uh, where Judy sings I Know an Old Lady, which I first encountered as like a kid's book. I never knew it was a song, but I guess it makes sense. I remember the book having some pretty ridiculous art. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. I guess I'll die. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and tickled and jiggled inside. Like, the, the bit is a shadow puppet progressing in gluttony, but also trying to solve a problem by making it worse. She swallows a fly and then swallows something else to swallow the fly. And Statler and Waldorf, who will not heckle the guest if they think she's pretty, decide that they want to help. I actually really liked how they incorporated them into this number. I know an old lady who swallowed a bird. How absurd! She swallowed a bird! <laughs> she swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and tickled and jiggled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess I'll die. 
this was my favorite number of hers. So yeah, she well she brings a lot more personality to this one, but this still feels like a Sesame Street bit. It does, and you know uh, Pete Seeger would sing this song on Sesame Street, and I'm sure it's been sung on Sesame Street other times. You know, it's a it's a very kind of I'm not going to call it a children's nursery rhyme, but it is a children's song mostly, mm-hmm. despite its fairly graphic nature. I mean, we don't see her explode or anything, so she does die though. Yeah, she After does. swallowing a horse. But what I did like, she shows a little more personality. Judy actually, she kind of smiles through it. She smirks through it. Like, she's in on the joke. The last song was a direct call and response, but this feels like it has more of it, more of that element in it. Well, she's playing with Statler and Waldorf a little bit. Mm-hmm. The cat to catch the bird, swallow the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and tickled and jiggled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. You know, we have this shadow puppetry going on in kind of a, you know, an oval frame over her shoulder where we're seeing the old lady eating all these things in shadow puppetry. Distending her jaw. Yeah, distending her jaw to swallow bigger and bigger animals. And I think Judy's kind of playing on seeing that and kind of the ridiculousness of it. And yeah, definitely shows the most personality that she shows in the whole episode. Maybe make it a little less graphic with the animal eating and it's totally for Sesame Street. Hmm. The only thing that makes it Muppet Show to me is like when she opens her jaw like a python and (laughs) eats a goat. Come here, Billy. (laughs) I know an old lady who swallowed a goat. Just open her throat and swallowed a goat. She's enjoying eating these animals. It's not just right. its not just utilitarian. Existence is pain. Gluttony is life. And at the very end, before she eats the horse, like Judy, do, Judy does have a moment where she almost looks giddy about the old lady's impending doom. Like she knows what's coming. <laughs> she gets a little giggly, I think, at the, which, I, which I liked. Again, I liked her showing some personality. But uh, it's a fun bit. My kids were like, oh, I know this. Everybody heard it when they were a kid. I know an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. Yes, but I swallowed my gum. How very dumb to swallow your gum. (laughs) Here is a Muppet News flag. He comes in, the report catches fire, and that's the flash. I feel like the newsman is who Sam the Eagle thinks he is. (laughs) Right. Like, Sam's like, I'm so put upon and all this is awful. And the newsman's like, do you have to report on anything? He's like, I'm just trying to help people by telling them the news. (laughs) I'm just trying to do my job. Where's my, where's my scotch? I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down, down into my belly. You know he's got some sort of advanced doctorate in journalism. Oh, yeah. Or like something went wrong somewhere. And now he's ended up doing this and he hates every second of it. He's like a more depressing Ron Burgundy. You stay classy, San Diego. From there, we move to Miss Piggy meeting JP and finding him attractive. Now, Nick, I ain't saying she's a gold digger. Here's the thing, though. But. If you cut out the ears, right, we've got very big eyes and a very large nose. He could look vaguely pig-like. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Okay. Oh, look, it's Scooter's uncle, the famous J.P. Gross. Oh, I had no idea that someone so rich could be so good looking. It was, it was, very, it was very weird, I thought. It was, and I was, it would have been so satisfying to see her get that full chop in on him. But of course, 
He's got a certain green shield. I uh, wonder would you like to hear me sing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> Call me irresponsible. Call me unreliable. Call me... Call you? What for? No money in hog calling. <laughs> well, call this cigar breath. Poor Kermit, man. He has a rough go in these episodes. Definitely. Uh, this has happened to Kermit before, like you said, like where Piggy rears back to do a karate chop and then he happens to get right in the middle of it, take the full hit. Um, and then he pops his head up and goes, uh, For a second there, I thought somebody was going to get hurt around here. <laughs> I was just a little, uh, I was a little shocked by Piggy's uh, obvious attraction to money and power, I guess. She's going places. This next bit is just kind of like, why not keep Wayne and Wanda? <laughs> It did. It really felt like a Wayne and Wanda bit. It's exactly a Wayne and Wanda bit. But also, did they turn Wayne into Link Hog? Like, because they both, they're both kind of that asshole. Like, yeah, it's Link singing a song called I Talk to the Trees, which was from, I think, oh, a Painter Wagon, which is another low and learner musical. <laughs> I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me. But, um, yeah, he's just going along and then he gets interrupted by the trees, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you notice him rocking the Teddy Pendergrass with his, uh, jacket? Oh, I can't. Down I'm, to his seeing that I'm seeing that album cover now and it's upsetting. You're the one that told me it was the Teddy Pendergrass. I called it the Al Green. You corrected me. I don't want to see it in either case, though. <laughs> but, uh, he's definitely got that 70s unzip to his navel almost. That album's going to be fire, which is why the trees decided to leave. Taking his fashion advice from Ben Vereen. <laughs> so I said, I, I love Link. It's just a Wayne and Wanda sketch. It's the exact same structure. This next one's funny, though. We return to the planet Coosbane. And yeah. I was worried for a second that we were going to see the Gallia Hoop Hoop again, which I don't mind because I like that sketch. But it's something completely different. Kermit's back in his reporter's coat, as he tends to do when he's on the planet Coosbane. And he ends up talking to a Coosbanian foob. A foob, yeah. Which is a delicious creature. <laughs> Apparently, yeah everyone just wants to take a bite out of and really really equanimous about the fact like it's not skittish no it's nothing like that it's just like no no i'm just very highly adaptable he's kind of proud that he's delicious <laughs> it's nice to be wanted that's true we have a saying on this world i never met a foob i didn't like especially with mushroom gravy his first iteration he doesn't look like a muppet he looks like a stuffed animal kind of yeah until i kind of figured out the sketch he felt a little sloppy because i was like that doesn't feel like a muppet he was too furry and soft but it's important for the progression though as he evolves <laughs> i don't know how to explain it like it's just the, the magic of editing the sketch is just about the magic of editing I, I suppose this tends to hold down the food population pretty effectively not really actually my species is flourishing really well how do you manage that evolution I don't think I understand. We foobs tend to evolve rather faster than most creatures. Keep cutting back and forth between him and Kermit, and he keeps, and he, as it goes on, he progresses towards looking like Kermit. And sounding like him, too. I think it's Jerry doing the guy, but then they definitely dub in Jim's voice at the end there. <laughs> of course, it ends with a big fracas of Kermit fighting Kermit. It's called the survival of the trench-coated. <laughs> but you can't do this. Oh, this is Kermit the Frog returning you to... I'm Kermit the Frog! I am! I am! These are Kermit the Frogs returning you to the Muppet Show. You can't do that. I'm the real Kermit, folks. 
So we have to talk about the interstitial with Statler and Waldorf because it leads into something we I don't think we've seen before. Wonderful. Very funny, eh, Waldorf? Uh, I wonder where he went. He was here a minute ago watching the fool and falling down laughing. I'm still falling, but I've stopped laughing. And we see that Waldorf is actually hanging by one hand from the balcony. That's part of the show. And then that rolls into the UK spot. So the UK spot for the first time, I think, is a continuation of the scene before it. Mm -hmm. At first, it's the commercial break. You cut from the Kuzbane sketch to the balcony. Waldorf is hanging and Statler's looking for him. And it feels like a one-off joke. And you fade out, which means there was probably a commercial break there. But then we come up and we're in the same place. And it's the UK spot is a continuation of a scene in the episode, which is different from what we've seen. Uh, Mr. Statler, there aren't too many people on this show I'd like to talk to. Well, I can understand that. They're kind of weird. Weird is too nice a word. Mm. Mm. But, but you and your friends seem to be very distinguished gentlemen. Uh, by the way, where is your friend? Oh, uh... I don't know, he must have stepped out for a minute. Uh, stepped out is right. I, I compare it to an At The Dance sketch, but it is distinctly better because it's running a gimmick with a lot of wordplay around Waldorf hanging from... Plus, it's... I, have we seen Sam interact with Statler and Waldorf before this? I don't know, but what gives him the... What, what gave him the idea that they were cultured? Is it just because they're old? I think old and derisive. Old and very judgmental. You must be cultured. You hate everything. You must be intelligent. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't go far. Yeah, he's probably hanging around somewhere. Uh, hanging around is right. Help! Mr. Statler, what I find hard to understand is why you come here every night. Well, uh, it gets me out of the house. But there are many better places to go than, than this freak show. Oh, there's the symphony, the ballet, the opera. Oh. Mm. Oh. Never go to the opera. Oh. I stand all that screaming and yelling. Oh. As we know from Statler's behavior, he is not a classy man. No, no, he is not. He's a dirty old problematic man. But I thought it was very funny, Waldorf hanging there. Mm -hmm. They would say something and then he would kind of swing towards the camera to be like, yeah, I'm hanging here. Oh, I understand it all right. I just hate it. Rather go to a public hanging. <laughs> uh, you are at a public hanging. Hold me up. Does your friend Waldorf feel as strongly as you? Uh, I don't have any feeling at all. My hand is numb. I can buy that Statler's deaf, but Sam's deaf? Sam lacks self-awareness. I'm not sure if that's the same thing. I guess eagles are more known for their eyes. Which is why he couldn't see him there either. <laughs> that's true. He can't even see. It's true. He doesn't even see him. He's just hanging there. He's calling for help. His hand is still on the lead. Until Sam knocks it off at the end. Wherever he is, it's good to know that at least we have you two gentlemen here to provide dignity and decency. Oh! <laughs> But yeah, I just thought it was weird that it was a UK sketch. I didn't realize this was the UK sketch. I thought that the next bit would be the UK one, although I think that might just be an association thing because early on there were so many of them with Rolf at the piano. You don't get the guest star in UK spots, though. But yeah, it's a weird UK spot. It's weird that that wouldn't have aired in the US because it's very funny. We get to the non-UK spot, UK spot, where we see Judy again. Yeah. And she's playing off of Rolf in a duet in Do Re Mi. And there's, this is one of the things that cemented my thought that she does have chemistry with the Muppets. Because Rolf is absolutely flirting with her. Or is Jim flirting with her? Well, okay. But <laughs> they do a cover of Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music, which, again, is a song that I've actually heard, but mostly because someone made me watch The Sound of Music. 
They just do a little duet. I didn't love this version of Do Re Mi though. Like I like it when it's a little more upbeat. Mm -hmm. And this was like a ballad. She doesn't. She doesn't do upbeat. <laughs> when I was doing the research on her bio and I found out that she was a folk singer and she liked to sing protest songs, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, she very much feels in the vein of a Joan Baez or Joni Mitchell. Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, that era. Yeah. Woody Guthrie, you know. And they were all influences on her, and I think she covered music from a lot of them. If she's your kid's music teacher, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she's amazing at it, and that's not that, like, if you can't do teach kind of thing. It's just entirely, her persona seems to create comfort in a space of learning. Okay, so I wanted to talk about this next bit with Kermit and Gonzo. So uh, Kermit tells Gonzo that they're going to tear down the theater, and Gonzo's like, No! Yes! And he's gonna build a junkyard on this very spot. No! Yes! Oh, what a terrific idea for an act! So you have to understand that Gonzo is an artist, first and foremost. <laughs> a little backstage stuff. I was reading about Dave Goles and Gonzo and kind of the evolution of the character because, you know, I was really kind of frustrated with him in the first season. I think it's in the Jones book. He spotlights a moment where, you know, Dave Gold said he, he would never get the laughs from the crew. He would watch Frank and Jim do their thing and the, the British crew, which in my mind are all like stodgy old veterans who used to do like David Lean movies and stuff. You know, they're like, well, back on Lawrence of Arabia, now I'm doing this damn puppet thing, right? They would, they would laugh. He said, but when Gonzo came on, they would bring out their newspapers. He said, until one day, there was a time where I had to say the word no. And we did a million takes of it. And Jim was like, just let loose. And I let loose on a no. And all of a sudden, they all laughed. And from then on, I had them. I couldn't figure out which no it was. But I think it's this. Because <laughs> this is the first time I've heard him yell no. <laughs> Well, because I've been looking out for it. This moment that Dave Goals described, but he didn't say what the scene was. And so I've been looking out for a moment where Gonzo screams the word no. And then he finally did it. And I'm like, oh, is this the moment where he got the crew? He's so excited. I don't know what he's excited about. He's excited they're going to tear down the theater or he's upset. I can't. I think Gonzo is just game recognizing game. Well, also, he likes destroying things. Like, he kind of does that Basquiat thing where he's like, I'm just an inscrutable artist. But remember this, though. What was the last episode of Salmon Friends, remember? It was them just blowing up the studio. We didn't see it. The episode that aired, that there's no copy of it. But mm -hmm. the last episode of Salmon Friends was them just tearing down the studio around them. I think in Gonzo's mind, what he's thinking is, he's like, that's a fantastic act, but I wouldn't do that till we're like, our last night. <laughs> that's a serious finale type of thing. Uh -huh. I'm a fan of a good uh, guitar smash every once in a while, so I get it. He, he shoots lettuce, creating a salad, and then Brussels sprouts. That's not how Brussels sprouts work. He shoots the thing of lettuce and it becomes a salad, but then he shoots what looks to be like a head of cabbage. He was using special bullets, or a special bullet. And it comes down as Brussels sprouts. I believe that's the point at which we uh, we go backstage. Yeah, then we cut away back to Scooter. What is it, Kermit? You're the only one around here who can talk your uncle out of tearing this theater down. Oh, gee, I don't, I don't think so, Kermit. Well, you, well, sure you can. Appeal to his sense of art. Tell him about all the people who'll be out of work. Mm, sorry, Kermit. Including you. Wait right here. 
every once in a while he shows like real heart or he does a good performance or something. But then you just have to remember backstage, he's still like a teenage twit. That, but also like a lot of the times I've seen him try to help someone. I don't think he's helping that person. I think he's trying to help Scooter. I guess I let him get by because I think he's talented. <laughs> like Mr. Bassman. That was a great bit. Like, I love it when he's on stage singing. So I think I'm guilty of the behavior of so many people in Hollywood where I'm excusing his terrible behavior because I think he's talented. It's showbiz. And that is my TED Talk on Johnny Depp. Go ahead. <laughs> Kermit's trying to get Scooter to talk JP out of selling everyone out of house and home. <laughs> Such a good line. JP, oh. you can't tear this theater down. Oh, sure I can. I got the junkyard all planned. I'm gonna put the old cars right here and the old tires over there. Ooh. Well, oh. what about your sense of art? Art who? Well, what will all these people do for money? Oh, let them spend cake. Let them spend cake. That is a hell of a way to paraphrase Marie Antoinette. But I, I love the twist on that. He changes Scooter's mind because uh, why? Because Scooter gets to get a nice, cushy new job. And so his primary motivation for stopping him from taking his old job just goes away. Oh, well, I was going to put you in charge of the junkyard. What do you say to that, kid? <laughs> Let's get started, Uncle Parker. But Scooter doesn't just acquiesce. Scooter goes and gets a hammer and gets ready to start tearing down the theater. I actually wrote Scooter, you traitorous f***. I'm going to have to bleep that. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to be their sledgehammer. It's very, it, yeah. I, I mean, it was funny, though. It was very funny. But he pulls up the hammer and he's like, where do we start? I'm like, dude. On a dime. He is a being of pure self-interest. He's his uncle's nephew. And I think this aspect of him is going to fade over time. We've got a cast full of very chaotic and very wild people, but one of the most soft-spoken ones is probably the most sociopathic. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole again, but we still don't know what happened to his sister. I'm just saying, where is she, Scooter? You never even talk about her, man. So speaking of unfortunate implications, the next bit is pure nightmare fuel. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I'm afraid of clowns because people would use that against me. Or we've got Judy on again to sing, um, and she sings Send in the Clowns. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? here at last on the ground, you in it's, it's a fine song. She's Again, she's got a lovely voice. We've got, I guess, astral-projected clowns in the background doing a bit that wouldn't be out of place for Moomin Chance. I couldn't find any credits for him. I think they were just probably acrobats and dancers they hired. I couldn't imagine that being like Jim and the Guys. I mean, one, I don't think any of them were capable of doing the acrobatics that were required. And it was an impressive bit, but it was just terrifying. Well, they were full-bodied Muppet clowns. That uncanny valley is very unsettling, as we'll also see in the next episode. I appreciate appreciated their attempt to take what is a fairly straightforward and one might say bland rendition of the song of just her standing there and giving you something to look at. This sounds terrible, but it almost feels to me like they were like, oh yeah, we can't just have this. We have to add something to it because this is literally just Judy Collins in a black background singing a sad song. There's nothing Muppet to this at all. Making my entrance again with my usual flare Sure of my lies No one is there 
This is Steven Sondheim's song. It's a song that's been covered a bunch. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm sure Sinatra has done it at some point. Sinatra did it. Bassey did it. Streisand did it. It was a pretty uh, underwhelming way to go out. Yeah, but then, you know... to the the closeout and jp is nothing if not a pragmatist i do love this he decides not to tear down the theater after all because he thinks it's going to fall down on its own anyway which i think <laughs> he seeded that in that earlier one where he was talking about the floor rotting where he's just he's going around appraising it and being like i could spend money to actually put in the time to tear this down or I just wait <laughs> yeah just wait you know mostly because this may be our last show oh no yeah scooter's uncle still wants to tear this place down no cancel that plan i'm not gonna tear this place down you're not no it'd be a waste of money this dump's gonna fall in on its own look at this floor and then of course he he stomps on one a little too hard and uh he goes through and we get something we've seen before where there's a hole on the stage and all the muppets keep walking in and falling through the hole while judy just kind of stands there well she wasn't gonna go through the hole <laughs> no no i mean she would have crushed war frank i thought the episode was actually pretty funny yeah despite our guest it's like a lot of the stuff going on around it is very very solid i don't know a ton about judy collins but i how to put this like but that's judy collins what she was giving us wasn't anything less or more than my image of Judy Collins. I could see Judy Collins having a turn at something that was particularly more raunchy and just surprising people in that way, but that would be beyond the limits of what she'd be able to do on The Muppet Show. I would have liked some sort of undercutting or subversion of her persona. She has no story. I, I was about to say, it, it wouldn't have to necessarily subvert, but there's no full immersion either. Even in the episodes we've watched recently, like Milton Berle, like Milton Berle, is, he's got a narrative in it. I mean, it's Fozzie's story, but he's part of Fozzie's backstage story, right? The Fozzie's scared to meet his idol, and it pays off. Valerie Harper has no scenes with Statler until the very end of the episode, and yet she is vital in Statler's storyline, and that brings her into the world of the Muppets. Judy exists outside of it a popular music star who was well-respected who came in and sang a couple of songs. She had to interact about as much as she would have if she was doing it on The Tonight Show. That is a very good comparison. She's... She's, she's making an appearance. And, you know, and that's something we've seen before and something we will see again. But I can't. I don't know what to do. He said it was up to you. Oh. Oh, oh, hello, hiya, hiya, hiya! Hey, uh, uh, maybe you can tell that I am not the Kermit the Frog. Episode 206 with special guest star Nancy Walker. Produced late June 1977. Premiered uh, in October in both the US and the UK. Same writers, same director with uh, Kasson. Actor and director Nancy Walker was born Annie Myrtle Swoyer 
on May 10th, which is my mom's birthday, in 1922. Same day. I mean, my mom wasn't born in 1922. Please, God, just in case she's listening, I want to make that very clear. <laughs> my mom was not born in 1922. Uh, Swoyer was born in 1922 in Philadelphia, the eldest of two daughters. Her father was Dewey Bardo, half of the vaudeville comedian acrobat act, Bardo and Man. That sounds like a Star Wars character. Dewey Bardo absolutely sounds like a Star Wars character. And uh, her mother, Myrtle, was a, a dancer. In 1937, when she was 15, Anna, who was going by Nan Bardo now, uh, appeared on an NBC radio show or two. But I'm going to be honest, I couldn't find out doing what. I just found out that she was appeared on a radio show. But she made her Broadway debut in 1941 in Best Foot Forward, which ended up nabbing her that same role in the MGM movie version of it that starred Lucille Ball. Lady bird, lady bird, fly away home. Your heart's on fire, you better go home. Lady bird, lady bird, sure as you're born. Leave the boy blue, come blow your heart. She did a few movies after that, including the Bubsy Berkeley, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney musical uh, Girl Crazy. She was in the original cast of On the Town in 1944 and was nominated for a Tony Award for her performances in both uh, the review Phoenix 55 and the uh, Garson Kanan musical Do Re Mi. In the 1960s, she did a couple of episodes of The Tad Hunter Show, a play of the week, an episode of NBC's Experiments in Television, but not The Cube, unfortunately. <laughs> She had a recurring role on the sitcom Family Affair, doing six episodes over five seasons. But it was in 1970 that she made her first appearance on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, playing Ida Morgenstern, the mother of Valerie Harper's Rhoda. You're Rhoda's mother! Oh, for heaven's sake! Wait, she lives right upstairs! Let me help you carry your bag. No, I've already been up there. She isn't home. Well, then, uh, come on in here and wait. I'd like to come in, as a matter of fact. To tell you the truth, I'm sort of curious about your apartment. Oh, why is that? Well, now I can get to see what Rhoda's place looks like. Oh, well, um, actually, her place doesn't look at all like this. Yeah, she said your place was twice as nice as hers, so I figured if I lock off 50%, I got it. The role was a big hit, and she stayed on, but only as an annual guest star for the first four seasons before transitioning to Harper's spinoff show, Rhoda, where she appeared in 44 episodes, which is a little less than half the show's total run. That, of course, was running at this moment. From 71 to 76, so during the same time as well, she was a regular on, um, and so I guess this was kind of her day job, she was a regular on Macmillan and Wife which was a San Francisco cop show starring Rock Hudson and Susan St. James, who is married to Dick Ebersol, who is the executive who helped get the Muppets on SNL. That's a rabbit hole that I could just... <laughs> Six degrees of Rock Hudson. And it ends with me and their son sitting by a pool pitching movies. <laughs> she finally got her own show, The Nancy Walker Show, in 76, but it didn't pan out and was only on the air for a couple of months. She bounced from that to Blank Sea's Beauties, which was a Gary Marshall sitcom, where he put her in an episode of Happy Days to to introduce the character to people, what we call, you know, a backdoor pilot situation, to get people to follow her over onto her own show, but uh, they didn't. And the show was shit-canned less than a year after her last one was. After that, she went back to Rhoda and finished out the series playing Ida. Uh, but during that time, she also started directing, which became a passion of hers. She directed episodes of The Mary Tyler Moore Show, of Rhoda, and later Alice. Her only feature film, though, was the notorious Can't Stop the Music, starring the village people. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. 
and it was a giant flop and is genuinely like Mystery Science Theater 3000 type stuff. I didn't realize they had a feature film. And she never made another movie again. She did A Love Boat, a Trapper John M.D., A New Heart, a Columbo. She was in Robert Moore's uh, star-studded whodunit comedy, Murder by Death, which I love. Uh, it's a, And the cast for that movie is insane. If you've never seen it, it's Ali Guinness, Peter Sellers, Peter Falk, and Truman Capote in one of his only acting roles. Hmm. Now, I remember her mostly uh, from her role as Rosie the Diner Waitress, who sold bounty paper towels in commercials for 20 years. Rosie, bounty's got my vote. Mine too. It's unanimous. Bounty is the quicker picker-upper. Half a sheet will prove it. One of her final guest appearances was playing uh, the sister of Sophia on The Golden Girls, and she was nominated for an Emmy for that one. And uh, I know people say it all the time, but it's true. That was a great show. Nancy was married twice and had a daughter, Miranda, with her second husband. In 1990, Walker joined the cast of True Colors, which was Fox's interracial sitcom about a mixed family that starred, for the, in the second season at least, our man Cleavon Little. Really? While filming the show, though, Nancy, a lifelong smoker, was diagnosed with lung cancer. She continued to act on the show, but only appeared in half of the final season and most of the time in a wheelchair. What's messed up, though, is also during that second season, Cleavon Little started losing weight and was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. So both of them in the same season. Nancy Walker and Cleavon Little died in 1992. She was 69. Her ashes were scattered in the Virgin Islands. Nancy was definitely most famous for playing Ida Morgenstern, the mother of Valerie Harper's Rhoda, in one of the biggest television shows of all time, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and on its spinoff. And that's kind of the personality she plays into here. Nancy Walker, 13 seconds to curtain. Stand by, Miss Walker. Are you kidding? Stand by. I can't even stand up. Because there's a giant green full-bodied Muppet standing on her back. Definitely not Godzilla. Okay, so here's here's what we find out. Fozzie comes out on stage and he explains to us that Kermit is sick. He's not feeling very well, uh, so he left me in charge. Oh no, did you hear that? Uh, I wonder how sick the frog is. Well, if he put the bear in charge, he's very sick. Inexplicably left Fozzie in charge. Now, before we get into it, what the hell does Kermit think he's doing leaving Fozzie in charge? To be fair, what were his other options? I would give it to Scooter. Really? He has more awareness of, like, how the backstage stuff goes. Maybe, but also, Scooter's the one most likely to pull a coup. Especially after that the is... last episode. Like... <laughs> That's fair. I, I legit think Scooter might be a sociopath. Kermit would come back and find out that it was actually called The Muppy Show now. How about Floyd? That would be amazing. Floyd's got a head on his shoulders. I mean, yeah, it might be a little esoteric and Nancy Walker might get kicked off for Frank Zappa, but still. Fozzie doesn't even understand why Kermit gave him the job, right? So Fozzie's going to try to take us through the show. One little bit of trivia is, now this is wasn't, this isn't why, but during the production of this episode, which involves Kermit's absence, is kind of the main storyline is that Kermit's not there. Jim actually had to leave during production. Hmm. And uh, for, I forget, I forget the reason, it's in the Jones book. And so they always found it funny that the storyline of the episode mirrored their storyline while they were trying to figure out how to make a Muppet Show episode without Jim around. It wasn't intended to be a parallel to real life, but it ended up being one, which is kind of cool. But Fozzie has a hard time with the introduction, but Scooter feeds him his lines. Talk about Nancy Walker. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, tonight's wonderful guest star is the very talented lady of song and comedy, Miss Nancy Walker. Now, introduce the opening number. Introduce the right. Ah, uh, ah, uh, here is the opening number. 
So the first thing I wrote down was, thank God they're wearing blue, these uh, soldiers. Well, A, B, I didn't realize just how much Crazy Harry kind of looked like Che Guevara. I can't unsee it now. <laughs> okay, yeah. I could see Crazy Harry, like, trying to stage a coup in Bolivia. Sure. <laughs> we get a troop of whatnot soldiers who are basically taking target practice. <laughs> like their howitzer. Crazy Harry's conducting them, like aiming them, and they keep shooting at everything, but they can't hit the target. They almost kill all their friends. They blow up a building, but they can't hit the target. They hit a plane, don't they? And at one point, they hit a plane <laughs> instead of the target. And then another time, they hit the wall of the Muppet Theater next to Statler and Waldorf's box. Um, so apparently, this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. But I was just very glad that these guys who looked slightly Civil War-ish in their costumes were wearing blue. Yeah, but this was funny. It was just a lot of explosions. Uh, I think what did it for me was the plane. Mm -hmm. That's when they won me over. That's <laughs> when they shoot down a plane. <laughs> so these soldiers are doing this to the tune of Night Train. One little Muppet connection. Night Train was the name of Franklin Roosevelt's dog on Sesame Street. So we come back and Fozzie's on the phone with Kermit. Hello? Yeah. Uh, the opening? Oh, great. Yeah. Everybody got a uh, big bang out of it. Mm. Huh? Oh, don't worry about Nancy Walker. I'll give her a classy introduction. Sure, sure, sure. Everything's under control. And Gonzo comes in and says, Fuzzy, what's on next? And he says, I don't know what's on now. Nothing. Nothing's on stage. Nothing out front either. The audience is leaving. The audience. The, the, <laughs> I don't think this is a failure on Fozzie's part. I think this is a failure in leadership on the part of Kermit the Frog. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how we're going to kind of be moving through it is that Fozzie's running the show and things are going to get a little messed up. And this is going to kind of be um, another, I'd say, concept episode, right? Where the yeah. backstage story is affecting what's on stage. Fozzie comes out to introduce uh, the unforgettable. The, the unforgettable, I forgot, Nancy Walker. Of course, here she is, Miss Nancy Walker in, wait a minute, I'm in this next sketch. Uh, Scooter! Phil, Phil, Phil. What should I say? I, uh, whatever, I gotta go put my costume on. And Scooter's, hi everybody. Um, uh, uh, listen, I'm selling magazine subscriptions to win a skateboard at school, and uh, I was wondering if I could interest anybody out there in 72 issues of Field and Farmer for only five... All right, all right Scooter, all right, enough, I'm ready. Which is exactly why Scooter should not have been the person in charge of the episode. Doesn't his uncle have cash? Like, can't he just buy him a skateboard? Do you think his uncle got that much cash by buying skateboards for his nephews? His uncle's probably definitely more of a bootstraps kind of guy. What can I do for you today? I'd like a menu, some water, and a whip. <laughs> Don't worry, his bark is worse than his bike. He barks, I'm leaving. This is kind of a little one-act play, I guess? So the way that it was shot made it seem like a 70s. Like, this could easily be a bit from an episode of All in the Family or The Jeffersons or something. Like, something about the way that it's lit and the way that it's shot. And I think it is. I mean, she is mostly known at, at this time as a sitcom actor. So this is a very, like you said, this is a very kind of sitcom setup. All, all she has to do in this scene is just deliver her lines. She comes in and she orders a glass of water. And there's a monster who is only, by the way, called Lunch 
Dimension Counter Monster. That is his name, or that's their name. It's got a very particular set of skills. <laughs> I think it, I think it's its first appearance, and that's just kind of what it gets nailed with. Mm-hmm. Fozzie brings a glass of water, and he goes to get the pitcher, and while they're not looking, the monster eats the glass, and then the same thing happens with a menu and the water pitcher and stuff. And it's just kind of this running bit of this monster eating things, and then um, Nancy and Fozzie being confused about where they went. I think Nancy's in on it, though. She's just being mean to Fozzie. <laughs> is she in on it the whole time? Like, I know she's in, it, in on it at the end, but yeah, maybe she she could be in on it the whole time. Because she does say, actually... Uh, where's the glass? What glass? What glass? I ask you first. Uh, look, I put a glass right here. I'll fess up. I ate it. I don't know what the con is. I don't know what the... This is how she gets her pet fed. And then it ends with them setting a trap for the monster and catching him. But then she starts eating the glass with him. Kinda. She like puts a piece in her mouth and then spits it out. (laughs) Of course. She's uh, getting in touch with her inner Mr. Peepers. But like, maybe that's her familiar. Well, and then she pulls off a bit of the counter and starts eating it. But if you notice, she like reaches for the counter, starts to pull it. Then there's a cut to Fozzie. And then all of a sudden she has it in her hand. And it looks a lot squishier. Mm-hmm. than a piece of wood yeah it, you know it's a very kind of cookie monster it's a it's a two-hand puppet you can tell it's a, it's a it's a live hand puppet so it's a it's a two two-person job in there but it's got a very cookie monster ish way of the way it eats and crunches stuff you know Speaking of Fozzie's incompetence. I love this. I love that they did this. Oh. We've we've talked oh, yeah. about them playing with form a little bit, but everything down to them having chandeliers and that's in the in the upcoming scene is pure brilliance. Hey Kermit, Fozzie's really doing a terrific job with the show tonight. Oh, the opening number was sensational. Oh, those holes in the theater will be easy to fix. And you think that you should have seen the way he got the audience to come back after they started to leave. The dance, what, what are you doing to me? He's explaining to Kermit the good job that Fozzie is doing at fixing his own mistakes. <laughs> And Fozzie calls for At the Dance to be the next sketch. And then Piggy talks to Kermit on the phone. Hello, Kermit. Is that you? Oh, Kermit. I was just going to call you. Yes. I'm dedicating the Veterinarian's Hospital sketch to you. Love of my life. Au revoir. Hey, Piggy. Hmm. We can't do the hospital sketch. Fozzie just introduced At the Dance. At the dance? Mm -hmm. I promised Kermit the hospital sketch. And that is what we're going to do. Okay, but we better get out there. The sketch is starting. And now, Veterinarian's Hospital. The continuing story of a quack who's gone to the dogs. Dr. Bob, what is this man suffering from? And so we get a mashup. No other way to describe it. But they, they're able to weave it in pretty well. We still have, like, a single note of jokes, and it's... We have Floyd in there who looks real confused. <laughs> I think he's been in the laughing gas. Oh, yeah. So basically, it's the veterinarian's hospital set, but then we hear the music from At The Dance, and there's a couple chandeliers, and what you get is a crossover between veterinarian's hospital and At The Dance, but it's incredibly well done, because one, they're not that different of sketches. No. It's just a bunch of one-liners. They kind of prove that in this by having it be a seamless at the dance and a seamless veterinarian's hospital at the same time while doing what they've been doing this year without the dance, giving it a theme, which in this case is the hospital. Medical jokes and hospital jokes. Hey, uh, by the way, how come we're dancing in an operating room? Because 
although the song will soon be over, the malady lingers on. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I thought it was really great. This is another one of the things that I was referring to and I was talking about them just getting really comfortable shifting things up because they are so confident with the way things are going. This sketch is a disaster, Dr. Bob! What should we do? What else? A big finish! <laughs> so then uh, backstage... Oh, Scooter, the show is falling apart. I practically blow up the theater, and then the audience starts to leave, and now two sketches go on at the same time. Oh, boy. Way to go, Bear. Uh, oh, screw it. What else can go wrong? Well, the crew's talking about quitting. What? And then we get, again, the Muppet Show taking UK spot too literally. And we get the return and swan song of Burlington Birdie. I've got a pal, a regular out-and-outer. She's a dear, good old gal, and I'll tell you all about her. It's many years since first we met. Her hair was then as black as jet. It's whiter now, but she don't fret. Not my old gal. Is this the last time we see him? He just does these two. Uh, so if we remember, we did Burlington Birdie from Ben, which was old British guy dancing. This is him singing a song called My Old Dutch with Rolf on the piano. It's a it's a song from like 1892. Again, it's a music hall slash vaudeville mm -hmm. written by a guy and performed by a guy named Albert Chevalier, who sounds about right. And um, as with many music hall songs, the lyrics dealt with like poverty and gender differences. And when introducing the song, Chevalier would enter dressed as an elderly cockney man with his elderly partner. And they would head towards a workhouse House, whereupon the porter would separate them under sexual segregation. The women work here, the men work here. And his character would cry out, you can't do this, we've been together for 40 years. And the porter and the woman would then exit, and then Chevalier would sing this song. And it's very similar to the last time we saw this guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine. I can't summon the tune to my head right now. Yeah, when I see this guy on screen, I just wish he was the count. You know, they weren't trying to, like, make Fetch happen with him or anything, right? Like, he was just, he's named after what his first sketch was. Was. So uh, he's just basically just a whatnot, but he gets these two little appearances. This is one for the British fans. But Statler and Waldorf totally get in on it, though. Like, because it's their. It reminds them of their youth. So you, the, the next one you thought was Nightmare Fuel? It's absolutely Nightmare Fuel. It reminded me of that scene in Evil Dead 2 where all the like where the, like the deer on the wall comes to life and all the <laughs> all the the lampshade and everything comes to life. There's a man, he's got a bird, like a canary as a pet in a cage and um Wait, let's let's talk about this man for a little bit though. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. So we've discussed the Uncanny Valley before. We've also discussed my early childhood exposure to a lot of late 80s, early 90s horror movies. Who do you remind you of? I'm not sure. But the thing is, the idea of this guy, like, sprinting down a hall to try to grab you or something is terrifying. He he is a little creepy looking. He looks, I mean, he 
kind of just looks like a Muppet. He doesn't blink. He's just sitting there, really happy to see you. I think he's stoned, man. He's on an upper. If he's on anything, he's real perky. Here's what I liked about this is I want to see the Pixar movie. There's the birds planning the breakout. I could watch that. There's a whole movie. There's basically, basically, this is like the other side of Chicken Run. If there was a chicken Kool-Aid man, yeah, but. Well, I know, but I'm just saying these birds, to me, the story of this is, is these birds come in and they show up one at a time and they serenade this guy. But it's all a distraction for when the big, giant, terrifying chicken, and I wrote, is that you, Harvey Corman? When the big, terrifying <laughs> chicken comes in, he grabs the puppet. I, I love that cut, though, when he grabs the Muppet, and he's he, obviously he's no longer being operated, so he's just a, basically a ragdoll. <laughs> Yeah, if I'd seen that as a kid, it would have terrified me. <laughs> the giant chicken who, yes, does pull a Kool-Aid man. <laughs> hey, Kool-Aid! Oh, yeah! And stuffs this guy into the cage and the canary gets out. So to me, it's the bird staging a jailbreak. Tonight, there was a jailbreak, but it's just the, the prison keeper isn't like, he's not aggressive. He's not, do- he just makes you feel uncomfortable. Like, you don't want to look him in the eye because he's going to be really happy that you did. It's weird. Is it a is it a, like a Ned Flanders type of thing? I don't think so. I think it's almost like John Waters directing a horror movie kind of thing. He's a strange looking Muppet. But you're right. It's not overtly strange, right? If it was overtly weird, then that's just weird. But that's also more comfortable, though. This is like... He should just seem like a normal dude, but he doesn't. <laughs> right. It just ends with a big crash and, uh, you know, the jailer becomes the jailee. Okay, so then we get something that I first reacted very poorly to, and then I took it back. Because we got, yet again, a guest star singing a song to Fozzie to cheer him up. Like, we've seen this before, several times. Fozzie's down in the dumps, because Fozzie's often down in the dumps. And Nancy sings a little song called Pick Yourself Up. Nothing's impossible, I have found. But when my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up dust myself off and start all over again and Fozzie's like you know you're right and at the but at the end she's like well I'm glad you're happy yeah well listen Mm. that's just a song it shows in a lot of trouble (laughs) so it 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 does a great I think they even know Mm -hmm. at this point that this has become a cliche for them already well that's kind of the thrust of this episode though is they're completely bucking the things that they would seemingly be comfortable with they're kind of poking the fun at their own show Mm -hmm. already then we get what I think is the highlight of the episode the naked truth I would just like to say a few words about... Now, this speech was cut from the Nickelodeon airings. So I guess it was too risque, which is ridiculous. The same Nickelodeon (laughs) that decided to air the bit on Rugrats about how Nike is free and have all the babies be nudists for an episode? Yeah, they cut this. This is a classic. This is a classic Sam the Eagle speech about... Nudity in the world today. (laughs) And I, for one... I'm just appalled by it. Here's the funny thing. This sounds like he had a pot brownie. <laughs> and he's like, did you know that under everybody's clothes, they're naked? There's kind of a like pot brownie slash like cocaine revelation. They have this revelation that's so obvious, like just a fact, but they're so stoned. It comes to them as profound. Did you know that underneath their clothing, 
The entire population of the world is walking around completely naked. Is that disgusting? And it's not just people, although goodness knows that's bad enough. But animals too, even cute little doggies and pussycats can't be trusted. Underneath their fur, absolutely naked. And it's not just the quadrupeds either. Birds too, yes. Beneath those fine feathers, birds wear nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> and then just a great long beat of him realizing that he's a bird. He's no longer classing the joint up. He is also naked. And he covers his junk and slinks off screen. So good and such a, again, that uh, lack of self-awareness, which is what makes Sam. This is a great example of it, but uh, very, very funny. Well, how do you feel about nudity? Well, personally, it always left me cold. So then we're back in the dressing room and Miss Piggy pops in to see Nancy and... Uh, I was wondering if I could borrow your hairbrush. Oh, of course, sweetheart. Come on in. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I certainly do appreciate this, Miss Walker. Oh, just call me Nancy. Then Kermit calls and Piggy tells Nancy that Kermit's sick. And so she talks to Kermit on the phone and she turns into a mom. Well, listen, Kermit, here's what I want you to do. Yeah, I want you to drink lots of liquids. No, don't eat anything. Starve a fever, feed a cold, right? Get into bed, turn the electric blanket up way up high, and I'll be right over with some chicken soup. And then it ends with a punchline that felt, um, felt topical. Listen, what have you got? What kind? No kidding, that's the worst. Oh, no. It's got the swine flu. Oh. Swine flu? Take, take this flu! So it's weird, because I, I didn't think swine flu existed before the aughts, but maybe I just wouldn't have heard of it. This is where I thought that maybe for a second Kermit was like pulling a Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. That like he was playing hooky. <laughs> Do you know what's been fun? It's been fun watching my kids realize that that's a telephone. <laughs> It's a rotary phone, too. So, yeah. Because there's that moment earlier where Fozzie's like, I'm not nervous. And he picks up the wrong end of the phone. That doesn't register with my kids at all. <laughs> they don't They don't know that's not how you talk into that stupid thing. It's so crazy to watch it through the eyes of people that young that are like, that's not a telephone. That doesn't fit in your pocket. Is he just hiding for Piggy? Is that code for like, I just, I have the swine flu. It's entirely a possibility, but I also like, I, I accept that Kermit would nominate Fozzie if he needs a night off. I don't accept Kermit taking a night off if he doesn't absolutely need the night off. That's true. So then we're backstage and uh, Fozzie is, uh, Fozzie's real upset. Um, he, he's blown it. Everything's gone terribly wrong as everyone could have predicted. He doesn't even want to go out there and introduce the final number. And Scooter gives him a letter that peps him up, for a letter from Nancy. Dear Fozzie, I just want to tell you what a pleasure it was to work with you on your show. You're really terrific. The frog's been holding you back. Nancy Walker! Gets Fozzie all ramped up, and Fozzie leaves the letter, and he's like, Scooter, you can read that if you want to, which is a weird thing to say because he just read it to Scooter. (laughs) But it sets up Scooter for the joke of, I don't have to read it. I wrote it. Uh, It's a good thing that Scooter does here, right? Yeah, but I'm still wondering what the angle is, though. You're just never going to trust him, are you? Do you blame me? No, I don't. I don't trust that. I don't trust him either. I like him, but I don't trust him. I would hang out with him, but I wouldn't let him babysit my kids. Come back home. Your kids are big proponents of trickle-down economics. I'd like go out with him and spend his uncle's money at Magic City or something. (laughs) I'd hang out with a guy. Just don't let him know where you live. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, I take great pride in presenting our wonderful guest star. He knows exactly what he's going to say. He knows exactly what to say. And then Gonzo comes and screws it all up. <laughs> That's Nancy. Rhymes with fancy. I know, I know. Walker rhymes with talker. Gonzo, I have it. And it's Nancy Walker, <gasps> not fancy talker. Gonzo's trying to help. Gonzo's regularly trying to help. And to be fair, Fozzie did screw this up last time. I thought that Gonzo was basically going to inception it into Fozzie's brain and he was going to introduce Fancy Talker. Mm -hmm. But instead, Fozzie just forgets to introduce her. <laughs> he gets so angry at Gonzo for second-guessing him that he screws up even worse. Mm -hmm. Now we get something that is not, I can't take my eyes off of you. But isn't it, though? It's not as good as I can't take my eyes off of you. True. Beats-wise, it's very, very similar. Away you wear your hat. Away you sip your tea. <laughs> the memory of Yeah, so Sweetums and Nancy uh, do their closing number and they sing and dance to uh, They Can't Take That Away From Me, which is a classic uh, Gershwin song from 1937 from the musical Shall We Dance. In the movie, it was performed by Fred Astaire. It's been uh, covered by Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme, Tony Bennett, Brian Wilson, Van Morrison. And uh, guess who? Jimmy Dean? Sinatra. I know. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. I know the song, right? Like, I, I know the song just in general. But, like, what was the bit? It was basically, I can't take my eyes off of you. But I think they were also trying to play into the height differential because she's not very tall. No, she was four foot eleven. Yeah. I didn't put that in my bio, but, uh, yeah, she's four foot eleven. I, I think they were playing into... She, I will say, in an episode of me worrying about Nightmare Fuel, in this scene, she did remind me a lot of Warwick Davis's Leprechaun. <laughs> wow! Is that my gold? What the hell are you? I'm a leprechaun, my dear. Here, this is what you're looking for, right? Ah, the powers are returning. <laughs> I don't know if that was me just sort of reeling from the Uncanny Valley Muppet, but, like... You went down a couple of rabbit holes in this thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long <laughs> week. <laughs> no, I, I, I dig it. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, I could, I could see that, I guess. You know, Leprechaun, sure. The Jennifer Aniston classic. I don't know. I, I wasn't too impressed by this final number. I... I saw it and immediately just kind of wished that I was watching the buzzy bit. But to be fair, the buzzy bit's amazing. <laughs> buzzy bits. <laughs> One thing that we're going to have to, I don't know if we're going to have to adjust to it or not. We'll see. Is these sketches that resemble others, right? Mm -hmm. Is that they have certain templates that they use. As we go forward, and we're seeing it now, they're creating new templates for certain sketches. And this is one of them. Right. Which is guest star sings with one of the big man and a half sized Muppets or, or dances with them. Like this also borrows a bit from the Corman uh, ringmaster sketch. So I think, yeah, I don't know if it requires a song specifically, but this, this one definitely does. I just didn't find it that entertaining. It wasn't very funny. It was just kind of straightforward, mostly. I mean, what's the comedy? They're kind of bumping into each other a little bit. I think this also plays on to a lot of the same formula from the Connie Stevens bit, where they're trying to one-up each other and make sure that they're both on stage. Sweetums knocks her around a couple of times. Like with the mutations? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see that. So then we get a great little ending where Fozzie says something about 
if Kermit finds out about this, he'll fire me. And then Kermit shows up. You're fired! <laughs> Kermit! What are you doing here? Uh, well, I figured Nancy Walker deserved at least one decent introduction. Oh, Kermit, I'm so glad to see you! He's in, like, a hospital gown. Yeah, he's got a, an ice pack attached to his head. Fozzie is so glad to see him, though he just showers him with love, and Kermit's like, okay, fine, you can stay. <laughs> again ah. doesn't work for piggy but whatever to be fair i think Fozzie expresses love and gratitude and piggy expresses love and expectation so then uh nancy makes a little crack at Fozzie by pretending to forget his name just like he had forgotten her name a couple times next time consider yourself at home so join us next week for episodes 207 Edgar Bergen and his buddy Charlie McCarthy. And episode 208. Oh, Nick, I'm so excited. You know who 208 is? Tell me. Steve Martin. <laughs> and we get one of Jim's great heroes in Edgar Bergen. One of the reasons we have the Muppet Show. It's also the reason we have Candace Bergen, you know, biologically at least. <laughs> so we will talk to you in a few weeks. I'm, I'm uh, Chad. I'm Nick. Yeah, take care. Go get your go get your vaccinations. Take care. <laughs> Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. This theater is solid as a rock. Watch this. Whip.